Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 9 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. If you're listening to this podcast in the United States, then maybe spring has sprung. You see, now it's May 2023, and Mother's Day is right around the corner. Congratulations to those of us living in the northern states of the United States for hanging in there and being resilient while we waited for more light and for warmer temperatures. I think it's happening. I know we're north of that famous Mason-Dixon line, and it's been rather cold here. In fact, I think it snowed yesterday. But I think we're almost there. Mother's Day is May 14th this year, right around the corner. So be sure to honor your mom with some flowers or plants or something. And while we're on the topic of mothers, I'd like to say hello to my mother and tell her thanks for being a good mom. I sure learned a lot from her. You see, my mom is very smart and taught me a lot over the years. In fact, here are the top 10 things that my mom taught me over the years. Number one, my mother taught me to appreciate a job well done. She would say things like, Tim, if you're going to kill your sister, then do it outside. I just finished cleaning. Right? My mother also taught me about religion, number two. She taught me about religion. She did. She said things like, you better pray that will come out of the carpet, Buster. Did you ever notice that your mom only called you Buster when she was mad? My name isn't Buster. I don't know where she got that. You better pray that will come out of the carpet, Buster. Number three, my mom taught me about time travel. She would say, now if you don't straighten up, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week. Hmm. Number four, My mom taught me about logic. She'd always say things like, because I said so, that's why. Is that the same as it is what it is? I don't know. My mother taught me even more logic, number five. She would say things like, now, if you fall from that tree and break your neck, you're not going to the store with me. Yeah, that's true. My mother also taught me foresight number six. She would say, make sure you wear clean underwear and socks without holes in them in case you're in an accident. (laughs) I heard that one a lot. Number seven, my mother taught me irony. She said, keep crying, Buster. I'll give you something to cry about. There's that Buster again. Number eight, my mother taught me about the science of osmosis. She would say things at the dinner table like, just be quiet and shut your mouth and eat your supper. Mm, Okay. Number number nine, my mother taught me about contortionism. She would say things like, just look at that dirt on the back of your neck. All right. 
And number 10, not last and not least, least but not last or something like that, my mother taught me about stamina. She would say at the dinner table, now you sit there until all that liver and onions on your plate is gone. That would be real stamina, my friends. I certainly learned a lot of important lessons about life from my mom. Hopefully you have too. Seriously, I wouldn't be where I am today without my mom's positive influence. And I want to thank her for being a great mom. Happy Mother's Day, Mom, on Sunday, May 14th, 2023. On this podcast, we're going to take a big turn based on what our listeners have requested And so for the next several months, we're going to be addressing topics such as the rise of social media in our society, starting today, the increase of hate, white supremacy, the influence of mis- and disinformation, gun violence in the United States. It's really at epidemic proportions. It's literally crazy. And we'll look at some environmental health topics such as microplastics and water issues. So let me know if you want to hear additional topics or experts. The big turn starts today. Next month in June, we're going to be looking at myths and disinformation of how people get their information, how that has changed us. So if you're not hearing what you want to hear on this podcast, send me an email. My email address is tjordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at 1795group.com. Once again, that's tjordan. J-O-R-D-A-N at 1795group.com. Please contact me. Tell me what topics or experts that you want to hear on this show that you're not hearing. You know, you can also find and listen to each episode of our podcast on our website. We made it easy for you. Just go to our website, 1795group.com, look at podcast, and you'll see all nine episodes there. So before I introduce my guest today, I also want to tell you about 12 resource guides that I've just written for you on our website. Yeah, just for you, that's right. And these resource guides do just that. They provide you with very important and very helpful information that you won't find anywhere else. You just won't. I've taken 23 years of being a professor of public health and boil it down into these 12 resource guides. Whether you want to know about how to avoid the death spiral, how to fund your programs, information about grants, or you'd like some details about program evaluation or strategic planning, it's all right there, right at your fingertips. It's on our products page of our website, and there are 12 of them listed for you, and I wrote them with you in mind. Check them out today. That's at 1795group.com forward slash buy forward slash. On this episode, my special guest is Dr. Jeffrey L. Blevins. Dr. Blevins is a professor in the Department of Journalism and School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Cincinnati, Ohio. His scholarship and research is grounded in telecommunication law and policy and engages critical political economy theory. You know, he's written a recent book, 2022, and the title of that book is Social Media, Social Justice, and the Political Economy of Online Networks. It's available on Amazon.com. And the book explores the role of social media in social justice and political campaigns. 
Some of Dr. Blevins' other published research has examined media ownership regulation, First Amendment jurisprudence on media ownership regulation, internet media policy, and the politics of the telecommunication policy-making process. I'm sure that he took great interest in the Fox News lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems. If I heard it right, Fox News will now have to pay $787 million to Dominion to avert a defamation trial over their line over the 2020 election. Is that correct? $787 million? That's a lot of dough. That has to be the largest media settlement in history. Wow. I guess that goes to another lesson my mom always taught me. Lies have consequences. Dr. Blevins has provided expertise on electronic media regulation, Federal Communications Commission policymaking to international, national, regional, and local news media. He's a frequent op-ed columnist in major news outlets, including USA Today, the Cincinnati Inquirer, the St. Louis Dispatch, and other venues. I'm thrilled to have him on the show today, and you're going to enjoy this interview. Our topic is this. How has social media changed us? How has social media changed us? When I was a kid and teenager, we didn't have social media. It's only been around for maybe 15 years, maybe since the 90s. So you'll definitely want to listen to this. Here he is, Dr. Jeff Blevins. Hope that you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome, everyone. This is Episode 9 of Grassroots Health. I'm Tim Jordan. I'm your host. And today I am so happy to have Dr. Jeffrey L. Blevins with us. He's professor from the Department of Journalism and School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Cincinnati. And our topic today on this episode is how social media has changed us. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing very well, Tim. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You're I really welcome. appreciate it. You're welcome. You're so welcome. Um, so tell us about University of Cincinnati and why a student should major in journalism. This is a chance for you to do a plug for your institution. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'll have a lot to say because uh, I absolutely love it here at University of Cincinnati. I've been here uh, going on 12 years. And I actually, as you point out, I have a dual appointment. I'm a professor in the Department of Journalism and the School of Public and International Affairs, uh, which is formerly the political science department, and the latter of which has been growing uh, incredibly fast. We have a newish center for cyber strategy and now a Portman Center for Policy Solutions, which is named after former uh, Ohio Senator Rob Portman. Um, but back to your question about why is it good to major in uh, journalism, I would say that we have a lot of undergraduate students that are double majors. They do some combination of journalism and political science uh, or journalism and international affairs uh, or vice versa, where you know political science might be their primary, and maybe they're doing a certificate and a, or a minor in uh, in journalism. Uh, but for journalism students, it makes uh, a lot of sense uh, as interns or cub reporters. Uh, their first uh, news beat that they get assigned tends to be one that's essentially public affairs. 
You're covering city councils, school boards, mayor's offices, uh, those kinds of things. And for students uh, more oriented to political science and international affairs, it's good to have experience with the news media, which is really uh, integral to uh, political practice these days. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. I mean, uh, you guys are really doing some good things down there. You said cyber something that caught my ear. Cy- yeah. Cyber strategy. Absolutely. Cyber. What is cyber strategy? Well, it's, you know, pr- protecting our uh, cyber networks from uh, oh. external uh, attack. Yeah. Uh, this is something that, you know, the Department of Defense uh, has been, you know, concerned about and, and trying to protect for a while now. So it's like... Preventing hacking, basically. Preventing uh, uh, hacking, but I mean, you think about how much of our, you know, utilities and resources are tied to, you know, um, internet, you know, online cyber networks. Um, you know, it would be awful to be hacked and you know have you know a power grid shut down or something worse. Yeah, I can see that. Well, that's really good. I, I don't know if we have that major at UT or not. Um, that's that, that's not my area, but I'm glad that you guys do. Let's since we're talking about students, and you and I are, are both professors. Um, you're a professor at University of Cincinnati. I'm at U Toledo. Let's talk about students. What would your advice sure. be to students who are getting ready to to look for jobs in terms of what they should put on social media? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I I like to announce to my students when I'm teaching media law and policy uh, or if I'm teaching media ethics or even the intro course, when we talk about um, anything online, but particularly social media, there is no such thing as privacy. Mm. And that is one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, that a lot of people have, but particularly young people. They think, oh, you know, this is just something that's just shared with people in my network. Uh, and they, you know, tend to feel even more secure with um, platforms like Snapchat, which they think, oh, it's just like, um, you know, instant messaging. And what I try to, you know, warn them about is selfie sabotage, <laughs> is that you are your own worst enemy for posting embarrassing or maybe, you know, controversial posts. You have the good news is that you have more control than what you might otherwise realize. But one of the things I, I like to have them do, I suggest that they do, and I would suggest this for anyone, clear your search history on your internet browser and Google yourself. Mm. What do you find? You might be surprised at how much information uh, is actually out there. I haven't and, done and, that and, for myself recently, so maybe <laughs> I should check Tim Jordan. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I do it uh, regularly, uh, but, you know, look for things that you might otherwise seem innocuous, you know, um, maybe you're partying and then, hey, there's, you know, if you're over 21 and you're legal age, it's not a legal problem. But if you're on, you know, the job market, you know, depending on what that job is, that might be a problem. Mm. Um, you know, I enjoy, you know, First Amendment, uh, First Amendment rights and privileges, and I like One of the things I like about being a professor is being able to speak about matters of public concern, but that's not the case in every profession. So look what you can find about yourself in terms of your, you know, your politics and, you know, if that's potentially relevant to, you know, what your, you know, career path might be, just uh, consider that. Certainly look for things like bad-mouthing former employees uh, and think about how things could be taken out of context. And when you do that Google search, also check for uh, images of yourself as well. Yeah, I, 
I think of uh, some employers I know that actually go there, that actually check people's social media accounts to see what they can find. They kind of dig for trash, you know. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, most employers do that. And, you know, what's interesting for me is not a lot of employers, though, have social media policies. So, you know, we're all using it in a way that we, you know, don't have a a common code of ethics about. Mm. That's really good advice for for students. Let's let's go and talk about scamming for a minute. Yeah, Um, sure. I've noticed in, in my own life, professional life, we do a lot of survey research. And so we're doing like surveys by text. Now we're sending surveys by text. And we have to put in like the first phrase they see, this is not a scam. You know, do not delete this kind of thing. We tell people up front, you know, this is, this is legitimate. And it seems like scamming may have increased over time. I'm not sure um, what, what's your take on that. And what are some dead giveaways that it might be a scam? If they tell you it's not a scam, okay, <laughs> it's they probably tell you. a scam, right? Uh, you know, well, they have gotten a, a little more clever because this is one thing I feel like we've become more used to. Uh, you know, particularly when there's a request for money right out mm. the gate, um, or you know, or you know, give us your account information. So if we go back, like you know, twenty years, say. These would be very common on email, you know, oh, I'm a foreign, you know, diplomat and I just need to, you know, I need an an American account to deposit $2 million in and I'll, (laughs) you know, I'll split it with you, right? Uh, But what we see, you know, now is a a lot more of people who are um, duplicating um, accounts of friends or acquaintances like on Facebook and then trying to engage them uh, in a chat. And then to talk about, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing, you know, this new thing. And it, you know, eventually it's going to be, you know, uh, a, a request for, you know, for money to, you know, get into business or something along uh, those lines. But I also feel like we've gotten a lot better about uh, detecting those. And so the latest iteration we, that we've seen uh, is really innocuous where it'll be uh, a post you know, someone saying, oh, look out for this guy who is um, stealing catalytic converters in the neighborhood or, oh, help us find, you know, this lost dog that wanted more, you know, kind of tug of the heart. But uh, you'll find that it's the same post that's going out in a lot of different cities, the exact same, you know, image. And what they're looking for is someone to uh, engage them in a conversation uh, about this. So uh, it's really kind of a naivety check. And then so they might try approaching you with with, with other things, uh, you know, down the road. But, you know, there are some really good, you know, self-help tips that, that we can do is, 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 one, be aware that this kind of thing is going on. And if it's some from someone, especially, you know, that you don't know, um, you know, check with your, your local TV station, your local newspaper, say, hey, have you guys, you know, heard about this or ask them to, to check it out? You know, they love getting tips like that. Um, one resource that I found very useful is uh, USA Today. They have a whole fact check bureau and uh, reporters who are dedicated just to tracking down, you know, these kinds of, 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 of scams and approaches and, and techniques. Here in Northwest Ohio, uh, there's a scam that's been pretty effective with older folks. 
Um, and it, it's like a police officer, a fake police officer, calls someone and says, you know, your your son or daughter, or grandson or granddaughter has been in an accident. Um, they, they've awesome. injured a pregnant woman. There was lots of blood. Oh my he God. can't talk. We've confiscated his phone because he was texting while driving. So don't don't try and call him, you know. So they don't try and call the wow. grandson or the son. And, and and we need we need you to go to the bank and we need ten thousand dollars if you want him out of jail. And that has been very very effective for the scammers. Um, and so I'm calling it to uh, your attention so our <laughs> listeners can know about it and. And yeah. you know, don't don't go and take money out of your bank account. No. Call a person. And right. so anyway. Well, that thanks for sharing that. You know, that's um, awful. But you know, the one thing I would add to that though is never take, you know, one source of information as, you know, the Absolutely. gospel. And you know, someone tells me not to call, you know, my my son or daughter. That's the first thing I'm going to do because you know it's not going to hurt anything if they've confiscated their phone. No. If, it, if that happens uh, uh, to be true, uh, I'm going to call the police station. I'm going to you know verify uh, this. But yes, verify, verify, verify. Yeah, and and as you said, don't take one source of information as gospel. You know, call. So right. Let's let's pivot a minute and and talk about anti-Semitism. Yeah. Anti-Semitism, for those who may not know what it means, is an anti-Jewish uh, persecution, um, crime, hate crimes, those types of things. And I know that anti-Semitic activities were going down for almost 15 years. And then in 2016, if you file the statistics, they started to, to go up again. And then yeah. in 2021, the Anti-Defamation League, which is known to record these type of incidents said it's a record. It's the highest it's ever been since the 1970s. So why do you think that anti-Semitism hate is on the rise and is social media have a role in it? Is this like a canary in the coal mine and these acts of hate point to bigger things going on? What do you think, Joe? Uh, I, I do, you know, and I would even, you know, back up and tell a little bit of a longer story in that, you know, sadly, internet-based platforms have been a boon for hate groups of, of all variety, of, of, of all kinds, um, you know, for, for many reasons. And uh, I started tracking them in the, in the late uh, 1990s, uh, you know, through um, – uh, through you know the current stage, but what it does, it allows these groups to you know to organize more efficiently. It's inexpensive. It's sadly a resource for revenue through donations, and I kid you not, merchandising that kind of thing. Uh, but furthermore, it affords a certain level of anonymity, and it's very difficult for the government to uh, to interdict. And what we've seen, you know, more recently from the period you talk about from, you know, 2016 on is that there have been particular QAnon type conspiracy theories that have been uh, associated with, you know, some prominent Jewish figures. uh, And that has, you know, I think, you know, helped drive, you know, that particular uh, those particular claims, you know, up. We had, I would say, in. you know, the, the, the late aughts, the early teens, um, there had been more of a push with um, social media companies to start to police some of these things, right? 
and they would, you know, close the accounts, uh, like on, you know, YouTube of Adam often and, and some of these others that made, you know, more specific threats, uh, about, you know, particular individuals. Um, but what, you know, is I think the really difficult part to, to deal with this is that, you know, hate speech has a lot of protection under the law. So, you know, take, for instance, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It's not, you know, these platforms that are producing the hate speech. It's third-party posts. It's people who use these networks, whether it's social media, some type of message board. And the operator has no legal obligation to police that. You're really left to whether or not they want to enforce their own standards, um, and some are better about doing that. Some are better about doing it, you know, with um, political pressure uh, or, you know, pressure from, you know, news media or, or users. But you take some place like, you know, 4chan or 8chan. I mean, they thrive on, on that kind of stuff. There, there is, you know, nothing is being uh, held back there. And there's also the First Amendment which uh, provides, you know, a great deal of protection for, for hate speech. Um, you know, if it is, you know, general comments not directed at specific individuals, it's protected. Uh, you know, only if it is, you know, direct threats, you know, that can be pinned on a particular person does the First Amendment not protect it. Hmm. You mentioned uh, in, in your response, you said QAnon, and there may be some listeners who don't know what QAnon teaches or believes. Um, what is QAnon, and what do they believe? <laughs> well, QAnon, we you know, to be honest, we really don't know who, who QAnon is. Uh, there have been there's been a couple documentaries that uh, indicate a, a particular person as behind it, but I would think the most fair definition would be to say that it is you know a loosely affiliated. Um, a group that has emerged on, you know, 4chan and 8chan. Uh, and, you know, it will give these, you know, drops that will include conspiracy theories. But then you have, you know, QAnon followers who may, you know, produce some of their, you know, their, their, their own um, uh, theories or they may produce related theories. But, you know, they have gone from, you know, Everything from that, you know, Democrats are Satan worshipers or pedophiles or you know, this this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I remember, was it a couple years ago, some guy showed up at a pizza hut with an assault rifle and was going to gun down everybody because he thought there were children being abused in the basement or something in the pizza yes, hut. Remember yes, that? yes, this was Pizzagate, uh, as, yeah. as, as I recall. And yes, uh, I believe uh, George Soros was implicated in that, along with Hillary Clinton and some others. And it, it wasn't yeah. a, a pizza hut, but it was a pizza parlor, I believe, that, that might have been owned by um, uh, a gay couple. I think perhaps that's why it was targeted. But yes, the the accusation was that they were running a pedophile ring out of the basement of this pizza parlor, and a guy came in with an assault weapon and couldn't find the basement of this place because there was no basement. There was no basement, right? Yeah. And you know, you would think that that would have been the end of any type of QAnon-based conspiracy theory, <laughs> but. No. <laughs> I would have thought that would have been the end of QAnon, but right. it has gone on. 
And you see where the anti-Jewish uh, flavor of it comes from. You know, they say that the, the Jews are at the in charge of it and this pedophile yes. ring and, and Democrats are Satanists and all these yes. types of things. So let's let's talk about who who believes this stuff. I mean, there has to be some conditions that set the person up or some conditions that make them more gullible to mm-hmm. drink the Kool-Aid, I guess. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think there's some, some general, ex, you know, explanations in that people are, you know, they, with our current media environment, we can really live in our own bubbles, our own bubbles of information. And if there is something yeah, that... Many, many of us do live in our own bubbles. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I read from different sources, but many people just... CNN or Fox News only, right? right. So yeah, well, I, I you know I do the same thing in the sense that I like to skip around, particularly when it's like breaking news or it's you know politics that kind of thing. Uh, but you know they live in their own information bubbles, and so they're looking for information that is going to confirm their pre-existing beliefs, right? They're not, they tend to not look for things that are going to, to challenge it or to reinforce it. I think the real problem that we have now is we live in this environment where it looks like we have unlimited sources of, of information, whether it's, oh, we've got this variety of cable news networks, we've got local news networks, we have all these different sites and sources um, online, you know, whether it's social media, uh, you know, podcasts, different types of, of, of outlets there. And we have these kind of false echo chambers that are created where you're hearing the same themes and messages reported through different outlets. And so it gives it a sense of credibility that's like, well, look, I've been trying to verify this and I'm hearing it on all these different, uh, you know, sources when really it, it can be very few. Uh, so, I mean, there have been groups that, you know, have uh, run what is, is called, um, I've heard it referred to as pink slime websites, where it's essentially they run a series of, Websites that look like they're news outlets, but of course they're just there to you know espouse you know disinformation or at the very least very heavy political spin. Uh, they're you know also likely to, to be the same group that places ads that might go um, on the web pages of you know whether it's like Fox News or CNN or maybe your local newspaper. Um, it, it's and when you think about social media and how you can you know create bots and botnets where you know that it looks like it's supposed to be a person but they're you know uh, you know putting out very inflammatory posts about a particular topic and you know there's what looks like a lot of different individuals and they're all saying the same thing uh, it can give it a sense of credibility mm-hmm yeah, I, I remember uh, early on in the pandemic, I want to say maybe early on in 2020 or 2021, maybe early 2021, there was a woman who made a video about the source of the virus and uh, the pandemic and, and vaccines. And if you really researched her, you found out that she was fired from a vaccine lab and she stole a bunch of stuff. <laughs> And was angry about it. And, and so I began teaching my classes just since the pandemic, kind of the five A's, you know, yeah. what are the five A's? You know, can we can we really say that someone who's angry at someone 
and stole a bunch of stuff from a lab and then produced a video about them. Is that legitimate? But I think, you know, it showed up on so many different sources. People are saying, see, I told you. Yeah. It, it's on Facebook. It's on, it's on uh, it, whatever, you know, right. it's on YouTube. It's, and, and so if it's on Facebook, it must be real, right? right? It must be legitimate. <laughs> right. so. Or, you know, they, they hear their, their friends repeating something or sharing it yes. on social media. And it's like, aha, yeah, you know. Uh, and sadly, a lot of people can't, you know, they tend to not distinguish between what is a, you know, a credible outlet versus an incredible one. And I think a lot of that has, you know, because I think, you know, news media has been demonized in, in certain ways as being oh, yeah. liberal or having uh, a, a liberal bias. And someone who is, you know, purportedly giving you the news, but with the spin that you like and appreciate, uh, that tends to be seen as more credible. But, you know, the, the thing with, uh, with with COVID, there were so many conspiracy theories and, you know, just patently false information that was being spread. Um, I did a, a study about this with some colleagues of mine at um, another center here at, at University of Cincinnati, the Digital Scholarship Center. And what we did is we looked at a corpus of tweets from uh, the period of, of January through March 2020, when, you know, we were just getting the effects of the COVID outbreak here. And, you know, there was, you know, claims by a couple of celebrities that 5G somehow cre- caused, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> caused uh, uh, you know, 5G COVID. 5G networks caused COVID. Yeah. And uh, Alex Jones, uh, who was saying, you know, hey, I've got this brand of toothpaste that will prevent and cure oh, yeah. uh, uh, COVID. Uh, and then... Uh, President Trump you know, had got a lot of notoriety for proposing um, uh, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for um, COVID. And it's not that that claim was necessarily true or false. It's that there would have been no way to know at that point. Right. Uh, there would you know, mm-hmm. have been, you know, uh, no studies uh, about it. But you know, the president had a lot of, of credibility. So when he tweeted about it, it got a lot of attention, just like when it was, I think, Woody Harrelson and John Cusack, who were the ones who were talking about 5G, um, which is really interesting when you, you look at the, the literature on uh, social media. At one point in time, we were very optimistic that, hey, this would be a good way for influencers to provide information, to get information out in times of, you know, health care crisis, that kind of, of, of thing. <laughs> but what if your influencers are not credible sources? It has the opposite uh, effect. Yeah, I had uh, one of my peers. She was an executive director of a health agency in town. She said, I was watching TV the other night, and there were two people on there that seemed really credible and, you know, they were biologists and they said that, you know, COVID was caused by this. And so I said, well, let me look them up. Let me let me see if they're legitimate. So I, I went to Google Scholar as a first stop right. and just <laughs> looked up what publications they had. The, the most recent publication was from six years ago and it was on frog eggs. <laughs> so I don't know what frog eggs have to do with COVID. Right. Probably nothing. Right. Uh, but these people made it on TV, and uh, they said that COVID was caused by something, and it was not true. And so I 
went back to this lady and I said, no, don't listen yeah. to them. They're false. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about. They, they haven't published on COVID. They're not experts. I don't know how they made it on TV, but they did. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, you agree with me that a lot of the COVID um, false claims were really that. And a lot of people made a lot of money right. from that toothpaste. Absolutely. Um, yes. I remember Jim Baker, the <laughs> um, Pentecostal yeah. guy, he was also selling little tubes of that toothpaste. He said, now, that's silver iodine. That'll just kill that COVID in your mouth. Yeah. And you won't have COVID. Well, we don't get COVID through the mouth. We get COVID through the nose, right, right? through breathing. Um, and he sold a lot of that. It was like nineteen ninety nine per little yeah. tube like that. So well, that's the thing. To- <laughs> if you're just, uh, um, let me put a plug in sure. for you, Jeff. If you're just tuning in, uh, this is Dr. Jeffrey L. Blevins, Professor and Department of Journalism of School, Public, and International Affairs at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. He's written a recent book entitled Social Media, Social Justice, and the Political Economy of Online Networks. And the book explores the role of social media and social justice and political campaigns. And today, as you know, if you're tuning in, this is May 1st. This is already May. Uh, We're exploring the topic of how social media has changed us, especially in the past 10 or 15 years. So let's go back, Jeff. Let's talk about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, what was the first form of social media? <laughs> I think the first form of social media goes all the way back to the early 1980s. Um, you know, we had um, internet technology that had actually been around since the 60s, uh, but this was essentially, you know, computers uh, communicating with each other uh, at universities or through the Department of uh, Defense. Uh, but the potential was was always there for what we think of as social media now. Uh, and in you know the um, late 70s, early 80s, we actually had uh, our first kind of online bulletin boards. So you know besides you know people at, at universities, you had uh, some wealthy, more fluent early adopters who had computers that could you know communicate you know via, telephony, right? So I know we, you know, make fun of, you know, dial-up modems, but that was, you know, literally the state of uh, the, the art then, right? Uh, and yeah, so, that was the state of the art yeah. back then. I remember uh, the first that that I knew of was like America Online. Right, America Online. Uh, we, we could actually post things on like bulletin boards and talk to people around the world. It's like, wow, yes. it was really cool. Right, yeah, you could post these, uh, you know, the, these messages there. But, you know, uh, think of the... the uh, uh, the film uh, Wall Street, I think, it was in 1987, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I may have had the, had the year wrong, but uh, you know, Buddy, the lead character, has a computer and has he keeps his calendar on it. You know that there's different messages that uh, that he has on it. It's just that not everyone was doing it. Um, I re- happen to have a friend whose mom uh, had was on AOL, and this would have been the early, um, you know, 80s. And he wanted to show me this, and I go over to their, you know, their house, and and not only was it a, a dial-up modem, uh, it, you had to take the, the handset from your landline and, and holster it on this thing <laughs> next oh, next no. to the computer, right? And it's always making, you know, these beep 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 kind of sounds. Oh yeah, and uh, she's you know chatting with someone, you know, uh, via this this bulletin board, and I'm like. 
well, how come you don't just pick up the phone and talk? I, I like it, it was totally lost on me, like <laughs> why this would be uh, popular. But it, it wasn't until uh, you know the 1990s that we had things that look more like social media now. And through this period, we never called it social media, but there was. You know, someone started a service to connect with, you know, high school classmates. I think it was called uh, classmates.com. Uh, um, there was something I think it was really popular in uh, Asia in particular called Friendster. Um, there was one uh, it was called Black Planet, uh, you know, that was for um, that was you know really um, marketed towards African-Americans. Uh, and then, of course, probably um, the most popular one uh, for a while was MySpace, which was essentially mm-hmm. a glorified uh, web page where you could put your likes and your interests and that kind of thing uh, you know, in there. And they had some of the functions of, of social media. You, know, you were connected with a defined you know, group of users. But you know, the ones that really revolutionized it were Facebook and, and Twitter. Uh, these were the first ones you know, to have a, a like function. Right, that became you know very popular, and in some cases, you know, it's a heart, uh, you know, that you can repost things by other users or you know say uh, retweet. Uh, and then when they uh, started to adapt, we call cross-platform connectivity, where you could be on you know uh, Twitter but post something to your Facebook uh, account, uh, and that you know really made it more popular and uh, and more universal. Yeah, I appreciate that history lesson. That's that's really good. I remember I had a MySpace page. Um, I thought that was really cool. And I, I think that started maybe at college campuses. Like you had mm-hmm. to be a student at a college campus and like like Indiana Wesleyan had its own MySpace or you know, the right. University of Toledo had its own MySpace. And then it just kind of broadened out to the whole nation. But I remember those days. Remember when we used to sit and listen to the, the modem go, shh. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that's, that was modern technology back then, as you said. <laughs> it was. You know, um, Jeff, all of us have seen the videotapes from January 6th last year. Um, we saw the police officers getting battered, uh, people getting, the one woman got shot. Uh, it, was, it was not a peaceful gathering of tourists by any means. In fact, yeah. if, you, if you look at the stats... Um, about 115 U.S. Capitol Police officers reported injuries as a result of that attack on the Capitol that day. So I'm guessing maybe that wouldn't have happened prior to, let's say, 1980 when there was no social media. Did social media have a role in organizing and that attack? What do you, what do you think? Absolutely, um, and I'm I'm glad you, uh, you you promoted my book just a second ago because this is the opening chapter of uh, of the book. Uh, is that what we saw on January 6, 2021, was essentially a strange coda to what we had been learning about the power of social media to mm. promote social justice and these types of things during the summer of 2020. But yes, social media was the primary platform. Uh, particularly Twitter, not the only media platform. I mean, a lot of these, you know, messages were in, uh, you know, podcasts, um, alt-right media, that kind of thing. But these, you know, unfounded claims about election fraud and how January 6th was organized 
was primarily on Twitter. Stop the steal. And, you know, former President Trump's, you know, infamous tweet about be there, you know, will be wild. Uh, that's, you know, that was easily liked, reshared. Um, you know, people, you know, were, you know, got together uh, in groups and, um, and, and planned it. Uh, you know, not that it, it couldn't have happened with, you know, another type of platform, but social media just makes it so easy to organize. Again, it's, it's you know, inexpensive. It's highly uh, efficient. It's not like, you know, <laughs> you know, pre-internet uh, days where, you know, maybe you were trying to, you know, send out a, a bunch of flyers or letters or, you know, you're, you're calling people trying to, you know, to, to organize. But it's a, you know, it's also a very efficient way to assess popularity. You know, it's like, oh, uh, look at all these people that are liking this, retweeting this, who are posting about being there. Uh, it can, you know, reinforce the idea. It's like, oh, I should be there too. So your take, just to recap, I think I heard is it this probably would not have happened prior to 1980 because people have had to put up flyers and right. physical means, right? Absolutely, yeah. All right. Um, it, you know, I look at many young white men. They, they seem to be persuaded today. Um, some are like, feel like, out of the mainstream, they might be offended or something. They and they're they're being persuaded to join white nationalist or white supremacist groups by social media posts. And I see a lot of misinformation or disinformation about guns, immigration, abortion, other divisive type issues. And what what do you see? Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I think a lot of uh, military veterans, uh, in particular, are being targeted by um, this, these types of alt-right, um, whether it's hate groups um, or anti-government uh, uh, groups. And I think, you know, they're, they're playing on, uh, you know, some of the, you know, post-traumatic stress that a lot of veterans uh, uh, face, maybe, you know, frustrations with uh, the VA and the like. Um, and for me, this is, this is really personal. I'm an Army veteran. Uh, myself, and I, I hate to think, you know, of you know that group of individuals being, uh, you know, being targeted this way. But there, there is some good work that is going on, uh, led by the Southern Poverty Law Center, to identify these groups. Uh, they have partnered with um, military veterans in journalism, which is a group I happen to be uh, part of, where they're, you know, looking to um, identify these groups, identify. The people that they're, they're targeting uh, and provide them, you know, with some uh, counter, you know, uh, information. So trying to, in, you know, interdict there in um, in, in some way. Uh, but it's 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 truly um, uh, unfortunate. Uh, but you know that that's it is something that that, that is happening. And I think, you know, with, with the power of, um, of social media, with some of the things I've already mentioned that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's efficient, it's, it's inexpensive, but it's also a great way to, to build psychological profiles of people to, to determine, oh yeah, who might be more uh, prone to this? Because we can find out so much about uh, individuals on their, you know, their, their online, uh, profiles and you, you know, aggregate that data with, with other data that you, that you might have. Um, and you know, it really can become a science. So why do you think 
they're going after former military veterans. As you get to, uh, I know. Is it because of their experience with guns? Um, thinking that they're more patriotic. Why, why do you think they're going after military guys? I, I think it's 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 the patriotism that they you know that it gives them a sense of legitimacy that these are you know the, you know the the ultimate patriots if if you will, and oh, um, you know in you know in U.S. popular culture we tend to have a soft spot. Uh, for for veterans, or at the very least, maybe in some superficial ways. But you know, you go to a sporting event, and um, mm-hmm. you know, there's always one or two vets that are being honored um, at you know at that. You know, mm-hmm. people. Uh, you know, we have Veterans Day, and you say thank you for your service, and um, yeah. you know, veteran discounts, this this kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm also a member of you know, the American Legion, which is um, you know a veteran organization. But yeah, we you know we are very patriotic, and I th- it's it's a way I think to try to reclaim the meaning of what patriotism is. Yeah, I've noticed. Uh, I think it's Sean Hannity calls people patriots when he tell you, you're a great patriot. Yes, you're a great patriot. He says, um, I don't know. Maybe me or you would be a great patriot as well. I think so. We'd be opposed <laughs> to these <laughs> to these things. Let's let's talk about. Uh, I've heard a lot recently about the the great replacement theory. Yeah, um, and that theory says that um, you know people that are brown and black are entering the country illegally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that blacks maybe having higher birth rate, which they're not, uh, and they're replacing whites, and so. I think we saw this theory get into the head of a young man in Buffalo, New York recently. He was white. He went to a grocery store. It was a top supermarket in a black neighborhood, and he shot, I think, 11 people. And most of them were were black. 11 to 14 were black. So any connection between social media content, website content, and the shooter's actions here? What do you, what do you think? Well, there definitely is some uh, connection. There, there is definitely a correlation. But you know, as a social scientist, I have to be careful about <laughs> not confusing correlation with, with causation because there could be a lot of people who saw the same content that this individual did and did not go in and you know mm-hmm. kill 11 people. But yes, definitely there is a correlation between people who carry out hate-based crimes and the consumption of racist content on media, uh, and not just social media in this case. You know, I mean, you think about it, a racist is likely to read books, watch programs, consume social media content, participate in groups that reinforce uh, and echo those racist beliefs. But that said, you know, the, the great replacement theory is essentially a, a newer term that describes race-based ideas and fear that have existed mm-hmm. for, for quite a while. Um, and I certainly wouldn't say that QAnon or social media has created this theory, but they uh, there are certainly the platforms that are propagating most of it uh, these days. Uh, and again, it's you know it goes back to those to what we talked about a little bit earlier that it's very difficult for the government to to interdict uh, here. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, of protection given to to hate speech. And, you know, it's sadly, like under the law, it tends to not become a problem until after something awful uh, happens, like, you know, what occurred in uh, in Buffalo. It's just that, you know, social media, perhaps the most 
powerful platforms to propagate these um, these ideas. I think what we can question, though, um, in this is the ethical obligation of social media companies to police the kind of content that you know that, that you know that is out there. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, there is uh, you know a line to be crossed, and it's you know social media platforms have First Amendment right too. They can be editors of of this. They just you know determine what their community standards are. They determine their own. Uh, you know, terms of, of, of service statements, you know, but again, I think the problem is that this tends to be, you know, a, a postmortem exercise is as well, even for some of the social media companies that are, you know, working hard to police this, you know, uh, that, you know, the, the content has to be out there, uh, you know, before they kick that person off the site, but um, that person can move on to another outlet, uh, can have several accounts under, you know, fake aliases. That's kind of that anonymity, mm-hmm. anonymity that, you know, social media can provide. Uh, and, you know, once that message is out there, you know, the, the harm has already been done. Um, it's likely to have been, you know, retweeted, shared. Uh, and so in some ways, I feel like, you know, social media operators or any interactive computer service operator, if they want to police this stuff, it's like playing, you know, whack-a-mole. Uh, you're, you know, you're, it's never going to be a, uh, a finished pro- project. But, you know, in- and from their, from their vantage point, they would say, well, you know, like, let's take Mark Zuckerberg, who owns Facebook. He would say, this is my private company. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm here for stockholders to raise the price of their stock to make a profit, you know, why would I want to, you know, why would I want to rein in someone's free speech? Right. And I think I think their their uh, way of reining that in is really backwards. I remember probably four years ago, as part of the Center for Health and Successful Living here at UT, we did a conference at what was then St. Luke's Hospital. It was a conference for women, and I, I tried to do Facebook advertising, and one of the One of the speakers we had was a breast health expert. She was a breast health surgeon and did a lot of oncology surgery, and and they blocked it. And they said, you can't say the word breast. Well, it wasn't sexual at all. The ad was, you know, nicely done. It was very professional. It just said breast health or breast cancer or breast surgery, and they, they wouldn't allow it. And yet they allow these other things to happen. So I don't, I'm not real hopeful and I don't see a lot of hope in human nature in self-regulation. My, I, that's my personal view. Yeah, I, I actually agree with with you um, on that point. And I like that you pointed out, you know, there's a financial incentive as well because yeah. they make more money there when there are more users and more engagement. Um, and we, we saw right. this back in 2015. Uh, it was reported in Bloomberg that um, someone at Twitter, this is well before Elon Musk and Twitter, had discovered a horde of fake accounts, like 30,000 or so. And oh they goodness. didn't delete them at that time because they were, you know, it was going to, well, there's less people using the network. Advertising is, is, is worth less. Yeah. There's less engagement. And they were competing vigorously with, with Facebook. Now, again, before uh, Musk, they eventually changed their policy uh, on that and did work to <laughs> did work to endeavor to you know get rid of, of some of those accounts. The other point I, I would raise based on what you said too is um, you know take you know where someone you know has the, <laughs> the word breast you know uh, you know flagged right uh, 
is that a lot of times they're relying on AI to to do this. Yeah. And AI is imperfect. It is imperfect. Uh, and yes, you know, it can it, it can be better with more data points, but it's never going to be perfect. We had uh, several um, uh, African American social justice groups um, who were being flagged on, I believe, Facebook and other places for commenting about being the victim of racism, but simply because you know a certain term came up. It was flagged, right, without any, you know, context. And, you know, to have human resource, you know, do this, well, human resource uh, is expensive. And, you know, I really don't know how we deal with this because um, if you make computer service operators, let's say we do what a lot of people in, in Congress say is we get rid of Section 230, the Communications Decency Act, well, then, if I'm now responsible as a social media platform for any harmful mm-hmm. thing that goes out on my network, you're not going to be able to post live anymore. Everything is going to have to be reviewed by me if I'm considered the editor of it. And so you lose that immediacy. Um, and it's it's just not the same thing. Yeah, I don't see it happening. Uh, if you're just tuning in, and last question, where this is Dr. Jeffrey L. Blevins, Professor Department of Journalism and School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. And he has written a recent book called Social Media, Social Justice, and Political Economy of Online Networks. It's available on Amazon. You can get it there. Last question, Jeff. This podcast is called Grassroots (laughs) Health for a Reason because my philosophy is things happen better when they come from the bottom up, from the grassroots. So what can we do, maybe as college professors, maybe as students, maybe as people that are at the grassroots being affected by social media, what can we do to help? What's the solution, do you think, or what are some Well, solutions? I think it's, it's up to all of us. And all of us as consumers of media and, you know, as consumers of social media, as audiences of social media, as users of social media. So there was an interesting survey. It was done in 2018. And uh, the, the survey was, what, do you, what is the biggest problem in, uh, in the U.S.? And fake news, misinformation online was number one on that list. Beat out healthcare taxes, you know, the typical pocketbook issues, even more so than, you know, hot button political issues like immigration. Okay. Mm. And it was number one problem. They blamed politicians for the, the, the crisis. And the third, they expected journalists to fix it. And the last part was very curious to me uh, because this is a time where, where journalists were being, you know, uh, greatly demonized, you know, as, 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 as fake news, enemy of the people uh, by, uh, you know, then President uh, Trump. So news media was, was having a big credibility crisis then. And as a journalist, I essentially turned that around and said, hey, you know, you are what you eat. You are the information that you consume. What is the audience's responsibility in, in all of this? And I think we need to be more conscientious of our own information diet. And that could be very simple things like, hey, I see something that, you know, I, well, first of all, don't just read a headline and then retweet it right? Please read it. And even if you agree with it, think about the source. 
get some verification for, uh, you know, for that so that you're not unwittingly, you know, adding to that echo chamber of, of, of misinformation uh, that could be out there. And the other, I think, more practical thing is, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the downside of social media. I'm still a, a proponent of, of social media. And it's, it's more empowering than I think what we can that's what we necessarily think of sometimes that we have the power to tell our own stories and, you know, think about, you know, how we do that. What kind of image do I want to project? What do I want people to know about me and think about me uh, and curate that um, whatever platform it is that, that you use. Uh, so that might, you know, involve the images that you, you select, uh, that might be the kind of, of news stories that you share that you like, uh, the kind of messages that, that you create, uh, you know, think about how things you post might be taken out of, uh, out of context. So, uh, it, it's, it's on all of us. Yeah. I like the personal responsibility aspect that it's on all of us. And, I would say, I would go on to that and say, don't confirm with your friends or on Facebook or other right. social media accounts. You know, I, we teach our students to confirm that your information is valid and reliable. And there are ways to right. do that. And, and like, you know, people that have demonized Anthony Fauci, if you look at Anthony Fauci's publication record, right. it dwarfs mine. And I have 82 pubs. Um, it, it just, right. he was the smartest guy in his medical school class. He's very intelligent and he's published a ton of stuff that's peer reviewed. Well, if your last publication was six years ago on frog eggs, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be uh, confirming that they know much about COVID. So thank right. you, Dr. Jeffrey L. Blevins, professor, Department of Journalism and School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. We really have enjoyed having you on the show this uh if you're hearing it and listening to it it's may and it's sunshine out today it looks warmer and uh, we're getting some good weather so thank you for tuning in last words anything you want to say jeff uh thank you so much for having me on tim i really uh enjoyed the, the the conversation yeah we'll have you back again if that's okay maybe sometime in the future uh, Please do. I would. I would love there's that. There's a, a lot that we haven't talked about. So, thank you, Doctor Blevins. We'll <laughs> see you later. Take care. The 1795 Group is very happy to tell you about Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble podcast, produced and distributed by Lemonada Media. You know, every day it seems like the world is on the brink of a crisis. There are just so many serious issues. But you can join Andy Slavitt and various experts on his podcast to make sense of it all. Andy's been called the outsider's insider for a reason. I personally believe he knows everyone. As a former White House advisor, author, crisis response leader, Andy simply finds the right helpers to get us moving forward together, smarter and calmer. Get in the bubble today. In the Bubble podcast is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.